Good morning, everybody, and grab a seat. Make yourself comfortable. My name is Luke. If we haven't met yet, I'm glad to have you here. And congratulations, because we all made it through Snowpocalypse 2024. <laughs> You're very brave. Uh, it was crazy if you'd have driven by the school. It was just an ice rink out there. So sorry that that happened. It's good to have you back. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Psalm 58. If you don't have a Bible or a device that you use, we'll have it up on the screen as well. It's going to be a very helpful text for us. It's going to lift a lot of weight, I think. Uh, Psalm 58, while you're turning there. It's no secret, if you know me, that one of my biggest pet peeves is bad umpiring and bad officiating in a game. I mean, <laughs> it's right up there. It's at the top, right? It doesn't, my team doesn't even have to be down. It doesn't even have to be nefarious. It could be accidental injustice. But if I see a strike called a ball or pass interference called when it obviously was not there or vice versa, there's something in me that just comes undone. I just can't tolerate injustice in sports at all. I actually mentioned in a sermon last year how when I did a little bit of research, minor league baseball is beginning to infuse AI-generated umpiring over the plate, right? And I'm all about it. I'm all about the fact that right now all over the country there are minor league players that don't have to worry about a human umpire missing the call. And they're doing it as a little bit of a playground because they're going to push it up to the major leagues before long. You heard me right. Chat GPT has come to save sports. And it's, it's, I guarantee, check me, in 10 years, come back and listen to this sermon, I bet it's in football. I bet it's in college football, in the NFL, and I am all in, and I don't want to hear from any of the purists on it. Because we all know that that injustice exists, right? But honestly, I think I would like to see, I'd love the same thing, to be in political leadership, AI-generated umpiring for something objective to say, hey, there's injustice over here. That's broken leadership. That's not equitable. That's not just. You use the language. I would love something, something calling fouls, fouls. I know I just said something political. We'll, we'll all be fine, I promise. I do know we're in election year. It's every pastor's favorite year. <laughs> but I would just love to see justice and righteousness expressed perfectly, no matter who's in office. I mean, from the HOA board all the way up to the school board, mayors, governors, presidents, Supreme Court. I want to see balls and strikes called rightly. I want injustice to be flagged. I want the oppressed to no longer be oppressed. Here's the thing. I'm not going to get what I want. Not here. Not now, anyway. Because creation has fallen. And ever since Adam and Eve in the garden rebelled and revolted against God, it set humanity on a track to handle each other unjustly, to, to be unrighteous in how we handle each other. And we actually see that injustice and that unrighteousness amplified when we get into leadership, positions of leadership, Right? Husbands, mayors, pastors, marshals, judges, sheriffs, chairpeople, governors, presidents, the list goes on and on. Leadership on all levels will always be broken because of the fall. Always be broken because we're imperfect and we are unrighteous. So here's the big question I'm expecting this psalm to answer for you and me today. The big question I would love for all of us to have answered in our hearts today. How do you and how do we interact with injustice and leadership? How do we do that? Especially when we see it silent in the face of violence 
When we see leaders refusing to judge uprightly, what do we do? Do we acquiesce? Do we revolt? Do we just kind of capitulate? Do we flip stuff over and freak out? Do we, do we, do we complain? Do we vote? Do we not vote? Do we get mad at people who vote or don't vote? What do we do? Probably a better question is, is it okay to be angry when we see unjust leadership? How angry? Really angry? When does it become a sin? These are hard questions, right? Fortunately for us, David wrote a song about it, right? Are you guys ready to get in? It's Psalm 58. Let's get to it. Psalm 58. I'm going to read the first five verses, and then we're going to pause and explain it a little bit, and then we'll finish the song. And this is a song. Psalm 58. This is the word of the Lord for you and me today in 2024, not just him back then. It says this. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom, like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. Let's stop right here. The leading theory, contextually, what's building this moment, the leading theory is that David wrote this while being pursued by Saul. Okay? And and you can kind of compress all five of those verses into this statement. Unjust authorities are mishandling power. Now, he calls them gods here. God, lowercase g. Some of your Bibles, if you're not using the ESV, it probably says leaders. That's a little bit better rendering of that, that word is one of leaders. And you probably just intuited that while reading it. But there's also an added nuance to the word used in that in the original language that lends itself to silence. So the idea that we have here is that there is silence in leadership and therefore justice is being dropped. And we get this today. We get this. I mean, much of the injustice that maybe bullies us around as people is in the shape of silence, inattentiveness, turning a blind eye is what we say, right? Now, so far we haven't read anything real super controversial. In fact, I think the only odd part that we read that might need some explanation is the fact that snakes don't have any ears. <laughs> so if you read that, you're, think, you're thinking, wait, I didn't know. Some of you right now are going, wait, yeah, they do, Luke. No, they don't. Go and check me. They don't, have, they, might, they don't even have little holes there. Snakes don't have any ears. So what's he talking about? A snake that's deaf and not responding to the enchanter in this moment. This is what he's talking about. Not even artful logic or reason could change the direction of this evil leadership. Not even something enchanting, not even something that makes sense. And, and, and we know this to be true about evil leadership. In fact, we also know that whenever you bring instruction or wisdom in a charming fashion, in a logical fashion to leadership, if they're evil, it just inflames the rebellion and it makes them brutes. It makes them stupid, according to the Bible. Proverbs 12, it says this. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. They're a senseless brute, in other words. Listen, this psalm resonates as much in 2024 as it did in 700 B.C. It's almost 3,000 years old, and it still has power to it. That's what I love. The main idea so far is that dangerous, deaf, 
brutish leadership in this world that is broken because of the fall damages justice by dropping it and others are oppressed in the process. That's what we gather so far. Do we have this today? Yes, we do, certainly. In every political ideology, of every political shape, in every square inch of earth, for every minute of creation until Jesus comes back, this is what we have. Friends, there are no Edens left. They're gone. And we, we, we think that in some places there's always justice. This is what Solomon says. He says this in Ecclesiastes 3. Stay where you're at. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Again, there are no Edens left for us. Not, listen, not even if your favorite candidate wins. Not bringing it back for us. I looked again at the Global Corruption Index. I glance at this every few years. All it is, is it is a ranking released of all the countries in the world on how we, perceived their, how we perceive them to be corrupt or not corrupt, right? I say perceive, and they have to use that word often because if, if they're really corrupt, we don't know exactly how corrupt they are, right? I mean, that's just the nature of the word corruption is largely it's hidden. And it's the same list of villains every year. It doesn't really, the top five doesn't really change. It's like Somalia, Haiti, North Korea is always up there. You know, they're always overachieving, trying to hit that top five spot. And then we also have the same cast of top finishers of the least unjust, I guess is the way to say it. Finland, Norway, Iceland, and Denmark. Did you know that? Oh, yeah, lots of justice there, apparently. You know, where you're, you know where our fruited plains lands on this list? Number 24. Number 24 on that. But all nations carry corruption to some degree. Now, certainly, listen, better leaders lead better. I mean, is that not the, the most profound thing you've ever heard in your life? <laughs> and certainly, good leaders, when they see injustice, can insert themselves, enact sweeping change, and see it repaired to where something beautiful is in its place, something just. And we love it when we see that, don't we? Isn't there something in the heart that responds to injustices being cured? Of course there is. We all love that. Man, I, I think that's probably why we feel such a satisfaction or a revulsion. Anytime we see a, a courtroom hand down a sentence, or judge somebody. If, if, if we see somebody getting what they are supposed to get, doesn't it make you feel like everything is right, everything is upright? Somebody gets life in prison, someone gets 20 years for what they did, five years for what they did. It's actually whenever we see the opposite that we feel off-put, just kind of, just kind of, ah, inside. Whenever we see somebody because of a loophole or a technicality, someone didn't cross a T, Someone did something wrong, and all of a sudden they're getting off scot-free. There's something in us that hates that. Where do you think that came from? You were built. You were built to, to feel this way. Whenever we see good leadership reflecting kingdom principles, it makes us feel good inside. Let me say this again as we head square into primary season. We are not one administration away from heaven on earth. We're not. We've never been. So David is about to show us how we interact with unjust leadership. Incidentally, before I even take one more step in this, can we just point out something that's obvious? How living and active your Bible is, even in this cultural moment. I find this fascinating. And when we have these Bibles, they're in our house, or apps that we open up occasionally. These things collect dust. Our apps collect dust. 
But what we really want is something that will speak to our, our conscience, something that will help us work through some contemporary issue, something that we really struggle with. If something could just speak my language, if something could just address these complicated times we're in, and the Bible is living and active, and it disciples us in such a complicated time like this. And this is proof and point right here. I'm real excited about this. Now, at this point, what we would expect David to do, if you didn't read any further, is that he would model for you and me what prayer for bad leadership looks like. And you'd be right. That's what he's going to do. I just think his words are going to shock us a little bit. Okay? Let's look at it. Psalm 58, let's go back into it, and let's pick it up in verse 6 and finish it all the way to the end, verse 11. Oh, God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Okay, wow. Easy David. He's being a bit dramatic. It sounds pretty crazy to me, some of the words. I mean, does it doesn't really sound like Jesus, does it? Did you catch yourself wondering that? What happened to turning the other cheek? What happened to that? What happened to petting a sheep and playing with the kids? What happened to that, Jesus? Listen, friends, this is what we call an imprecatory psalm. An imprecation is just a curse. It's just a fancy word for curse. This is a cursing song. That's what we're reading right now. There are a handful of these in your Bible, not very many. But it is important that we know how to interact with it if we want to honor the whole Bible. Because surely, if you've grown up in the Word, you've bumped into these passages before and have not known what to do with them. Right? I don't blame you. What do you do with them? Even the difficult passages. Let me just say a couple things to frame this up. It's important to know this is not an emotional outburst. It's not an emotional outburst. It's not like he's, he's not imprecating like we might, where we feel the pressure for something, and we get mad, and we start kicking things, we start cussing, Christian cussing, whatever you want to say. We start doing these because we're mad, and it's an emotional outburst. That's not what he's doing. This is actually an expression of public worship. This was thought through. This was designed. But there is a graphic pattern. You picked it up, right? It feels a little R-rated. God, take this leadership, which is a bunch of jokes, a bunch of unjust brutes that are senseless and stupid, and knock their teeth out. Make them disappear. Blunt them. Make them as if they never were, and do it as quick as possible. That's what he's saying. It's important that you know we are not watching David's sin right now. It seems like it. He's not. But the fact that it feels like that is actually why some denominations and churches will delete these from the book of Psalms, what we call the Psalter, right? It's just a fancy work for all the Psalms. They actually pull them out. Their Bibles have less of them in there, right? I think there's a very big danger in that. That's why some of you probably never heard a sermon preached on an imprecatory Psalm, if we're all being honest. It's a difficult passage. 
But here's one thing that you can carry into these whenever you're reading them on your own or if you have a friend that's far from Christ and they just slide the Bible across the table and say, well, then you're going to have to explain this. This psalm, it sounds like it's got hair on it. I don't know how this looks whenever you hold your Jesus up. It looks strange. Here's an interpretive principle. To pray against injustice is to align yourself with the heart of God. To pray against justice being dropped, oppressors, is to align yourself with the burdens in the heart of God. And this is why. God loves justice, and he hates, with a burning hot anger, he hates injustice, hates the side of it. David's aligning himself with the heart of God. He's showing solidarity here as he leads the church when he imprecates the unbalanced scales of justice. Right? Yeah, but Luke, bathe in blood? (laughs) I mean, honestly, bathing in blood though? Listen, that's not some, that's not a taunt. That's not, that's not like a bloodthirsty taunt, like sticking it in your face. This is nothing more than Near Eastern hyperbole. It's just a way of describing a warrior's share in an enemy's defeat. That's all it is. It's, imagine it just moments after a battle, and then there's the warrior he's getting to share. The conquering warrior is getting to share in the fruit of the battle, the enemy's defeat. We use her hyperbole all the time right now. And it would be strange if 3,000 years from now people were to read it. <laughs> right? I'm, I'm, so hungry, I'm so hungry I can eat a... But we don't eat horses. We don't eat horses, do we? Unless they deserve it. Then it's fine to eat a horse, right? <laughs> I'm just playing. I would try it, though, honestly. If I was hungry enough, I'd try to eat a horse. How about this one? Our team is going to wipe the floor with that team. That sounds oddly inappropriate, right? And in, in not very effective to take a human body and wipe the floor with that human body. Right, but we know what we mean by that. 2,700 years from now, if they read some of our interactions on social media or whatever they would be reading, they'd be like, what is wrong with these people? They're eating animals that we don't eat today and they're wiping the floor with each other. What is wrong? With it? It's just hyperbole. That's all it is. Bathing in blood is the image of a moment after a battle where the enemy has totally collapsed. That's all it is. Can't get lost in the language there. But here's the thing. Not only is David not in sin, you're not either. We're free, free to pray for the collapse of wickedness. Not only are we free to do it, let me crank the volume on that. You're called to do it. Called to pray for the collapse of of wickedness. What do you think you're praying whenever you say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? That's an imprecation. That's an imprecatory prayer. We're asking God to install his kingdom in the midst of many foul kingdoms. And what will that kingdom do as it expands and grows? It will start turning things upside down. I mean, just asking for the Lord to return. Lord, will you return? Will you bring your peace to this world? Will you return and finish everything? That's an imprecation. By him coming, many will perish. That's a fact. So as you scroll on your phone and you see some news of an atrocity because of something that happened at the hands of unjust leaders, and you don't have to scroll very long to find it, do you? And you find yourself praying for God's return to bring justice, you're just joining David's imprecation. Just using different language. We're a different culture. David prayed this way because of his hatred of sin, his hatred of evil. He wasn't bothered by his language because he was so bothered by the sin. 
I find a lot of people that are bothered by this language to not be so bothered by the sin, right? We'll talk about that in a minute. But I just want to make sure that the, uh, maybe the second small caveat to tack onto this before I move forward is David is not praying for the destruction of his personal enemies here. Although they are potentially chasing him down, he's praying for destruction of the enemies of God. And this is a place where we could get our wires all tangled up a little bit, and I get it. You know, we feel the injustice. We feel like we're victimized, and so we're mostly concerned about ourselves. So we'll, con- we'll just instantly launch an imprecation towards our HOA or our jerk boss or somebody that annoys us. But nowhere in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, do we see God encouraging us to just randomly curse people that annoy us. We don't see that anywhere. But we can be clumsy. We can be clumsy as modern readers, not just with a prayer, a song like this. We can, we can be clumsy with bad leadership in a couple primary directions. And I'm just going to list the two. You put yourself in one of these two as best you can. In fact, you could probably imagine them on a spectrum, right? We've got a big spectrum on how, without Jesus, we react to unjust leadership. And on one side, we find ourselves possibly overly captivated with the destruction of leaders, a little bit more bloodthirsty, right? Maybe for sinful reasons. We don't have any problem with a song of imprecation. In fact, we think there needs to be more in there. We need at least a good another 20 psalms in there of teeth being broken out and blood all over the place. We need more of those, right? You might find yourself not exactly there, but probably leaning in that direction, some of you, right? I get it. We feel pressure. We hate it. We get sick and tired of seeing a broken tax code or immigration or something, something that didn't look like it did when we grew up, and we get angry. In fact, we could be so captivated with cursing authority that even Jesus looks too passive for us. He's busy turning the other cheek. He's busy paying taxes, and we're busy just spitting our mad facts on Facebook as fast as we can. Listen, if you're tempted in this direction to metaphorically long to bathe your feet in the blood of unjust rulers. I want to ask you a couple questions. I will move to the other side of the spectrum, but right now I want to ask you a couple of questions. How have you prayed for that leader? How have you prayed? What does intercession look like for you when it comes to government? I mean, what do you really even want to happen? And what will it mean for you if you get that? Will you feel glorified? Or will you be happy that God was glorified? What, what is exactly going on in your heart? Especially when you see Paul and Jesus interact with bad authorities, with wicked governance. How do you feel about that? Again, friend, I get it. But we are not one impeachment away from America getting back to Eden. We're not one administration away from paradise coming to us. The only way to re-enter Eden is through the person of Christ, who is our second Adam, Right? You've you've caught this if you've read Genesis, how when Adam and Eve were flushed out of the garden, an angel was stationed there with a flaming sword. It it would mean death to reenter the garden. It would mean certain death to even attempt it. Our second Adam steps into the sword so we could regain paradise. He does it through the cross, but he brings paradise to us. So sure, vote at the polls for the welfare of this city, for the welfare of your home and the welfare of your country. Vote Vote, vote. But no, that candidate or administration cannot bring Eden to you. That's probably a different sermon, right? But then there's another side of the spectrum. That's one side. You might find yourself there or close to it. On the other side, we find readers of something like this that feel repelled, 
off-put by something like a call for destruction. They take a bit more of a sentimental stance. You might actually struggle with the fact that this imprecatory psalm is even in here. You don't want more. You want less. You don't want any in there because you don't know what this means. How are you supposed to see God in something like this? Again, I've met Christians, Christians, who have taken Sharpies to their Bible and have marked these out. Scratched them out. I've seen pastors do it. I think it's just a soppy-heartedness. I think that's what it is. In fact, if you catch yourself wishing something wasn't in the Bible, that could mean one of two things, right? It could mean you don't understand it. You might need to grow in your understanding of what it really means, or you just need to humble yourself. You need to find a place of humility. Again, it's probably another sermon. But here's a reminder for those of us who are on this side of the spectrum a little bit. As a reminder, we're largely, today, we're largely ignorant of being under such unjust leadership. Largely. David's not. We are. I mean, I know we feel injustice, but none of us in here probably have relatives in an unmarked mass grave anywhere, right? None of us have had to run or hide from hunting authorities and sheriffs and the FBI. We've never had to do that. You've never had your kids taken from you because of a, of a governance that was wicked. I think it's a false tenderheartedness that extends charity and tolerance where it should not. Let me say again, God burns with a red-hot anger when he sees injustice. Red hot. If you're tempted towards that end of the spectrum, it's likely why you struggle whenever you read anywhere in the Bible of God taking battle formation. We start flipping things over. And maybe it reminds you of a parent or an uncle or a grandpa that whenever they reacted like this, you saw sin in it. And so all you know is to see sin in this. I mean, let me ask you, do you think God is inappropriate in wanting to pour wrath on injustice? Is that an inappropriate reaction for God? Or is it appropriate? Let me just say he's properly measured in his wrath. It's not him that drops wrath and judgment and justice. It's you and me. We do it all the time. We don't know how to handle things like vengeance. That's why he says vengeance belongs to me, not you. He is perfectly just, or he is not God at all. We have to remember that. You see, I want you to see the spectrum of sin that we could sit on. We're tempted to fall on. Some of us, we could be on both ends in the same day, right? Whenever we see unjust governance above us. Listen, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. But this Bible has a heavy, heavy voice when it comes to how we interact with unjust and broken leadership. It speaks heavily on it. I mean, this topic, it gained tremendous traction during the pandemic. Tremendous. Go back and look if you want. You could fact check me on this. Romans 13, during that year maybe even the six months, if you were to zoom in. Romans 13, the most Googled Bible passage in the Bible. And that passage was searched more than in any other time in Google's history or record keeping, right? Why? Well, let me read it to you. Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. This was a keystone passage when it comes to teaching civil disobedience, right? We hit this a few times during the pandemic as well. We felt like it was important. But it spiked on, why did it spike on Google? Because we didn't know what we were doing. 
We didn't know what to do. We didn't know how to live under broken leadership. I mean, is what they're asking us to do, is it injustice or is it just inconvenience? It wasn't so easy to answer. If you were to go back in time, hindsight, maybe. But in the moment, not so easy. Not so easy. We didn't know how to interpret a lot of what was going on around us. Let me just remind you, if you were part of Legacy back then, we couldn't sing in here. We could not sing. But we could protest out there, right? We had to wear masks in here. We didn't have to wear masks at protests. And there was a lot of people thought, that's not fair. That's oppressive. That's injustice. What do we do? Do we revolt? Do we just take it? When we're asked to follow such strict rules, when even the governing authorities were not following those same strict rules, it felt so unjust. You see, the church has always been foggy, fuzzy. We bump into each other, really, when it comes into how we are supposed to interact with unjust authorities, especially without Jesus. We struggle with it. So how do we do it? How do we interact with broken leadership 2024 and moving on? Right? Because we might have a new election, we might have a new president. Things are always going to be broken until they're not, until we have one final leader rolling on a white horse who is perfect, he is equitable, and he is righteous. Until that time, we have what we have. We have the best that we could produce. So what do, what do you and I do? Here's a hint on the answer. It's not on the spectrum. It's not somewhere in the middle where we're a little bit aggressive, right? We're a little bit passive. It's not that. It's to get rid of it. It's a totally different track. And the fact that the gospel frames you and me perfectly on how to interact with unjust leaders. The gospel, of all things. The beautiful story of what God has done for you in the person of Christ, who came to live, die, live again, collect the people around him, fill them with his spirit as he goes off to intercede for us, prepare a home for us, where he will come back one day and collect us all again. This gospel found me silent, oppressive, complicit in injustice. That's how it found me. I was born with venom in my heart. I was born a brute. I acted as a brute, silent, deaf, dangerous. I hated wisdom. I loved the darkness. So did you. That's how the gospel finds us. I remember how paralyzed I was sitting in a, in a group of college students and hearing a guy get up and preach on Psalm 98. Don't turn there. But basically in the Psalm, it talks about how God comes to judge us. He does so in two ways, with righteousness and equity. And that scared me because I had blood on my hands. I mean, if he comes and he is righteous, he expects righteousness. And if he comes with equity, I don't get a hall pass. It doesn't matter how hard I try. It doesn't mean how well I mean to do. Man, I mean, do you ever take the time to just reflect on what justice would look like for you if Jesus was pulled out of the picture? Oh, just the chaos of the human heart, just the stubbornness, the pride, the sadness, the hopelessness. It's okay to think on those things because that sets the table for the beauty of grace and mercy. That's why grace and mercy are even beautiful. Grace comes and God gives favor to those who don't even deserve it and try to run away from it half the time. And he brings mercy to people who don't get what they do deserve to get. And it won't make any sense unless you understand how much blood was on our hands. By the way, if you are not in Christ, if you're here or you're watching online and you are not in Christ, you would not call yourself a Christian, God is not your father, but he is your judge. Friend, he comes with righteousness and he comes with equity. 
You need to know that. He's equitable. How are you going to get that righteousness he's looking for? If he's perfectly righteous, and he's asking you, demanding, that you also are perfectly righteous, how are you going to get that? You're just going to start now and try real hard? You're just going to give a lot of money to the church? You're just going to behave? You're going to show up to a lot of things? You're going to stop cussing, stop looking at it? What are you going to do to produce perfect righteousness? You can't. You can't. So God does what is incredible. He says, I'll come myself. I will come myself and receive the wrath that will make justice gleam and shine before all of the cosmos. He will receive what we were supposed to receive. He's perfectly righteous as a judge, perfectly receiving delivered justice for imperfect villains, and he builds a family out of it. Well, anything else is just not a very good gospel at all. I mean, earlier I talked about bathing in blood just for a moment, and I said how it's a common way of describing a warrior's share in an enemy's defeat. We get to share in our enemy's defeat. In the end of all ends, sin and death as they and decay as they go down, we stand there as what? As Jesus' blood washes over us. It's his blood that covers us. The blood on my hands will be replaced by the blood on the cross. This is fascinating to me. Revelation 12, it says this. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even to death. Listen, we're going to conquer, church, not by electing the right guy, but by believing and trusting and testifying of the right God. That's how we conquer. So, how do we do it? How do we navigate broken leaders in the light of the justice spent on Christ for you and me? We pray. Does that sound like such a basic answer? We pray. I mean, I say so, but what does it look like for you? Are you doing it now? Are we praying? I want you to frame in your mind. Just imagine with me. Stretch into your imagination. Who is that person when you see them on news or you read about them, you think, I would love for you to collapse. I would love for you to collapse. I'd love for some scandal to be found out about you and you'd be crushed. That's what I would love. I've got a few. Who is it for you? We pray. 1 Timothy 2, this is Paul. He says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that way we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Hey, friends, Paul's not assuming a good government here. He's not. When we read this, we think he is. When we read this, we hear in our heads, if your political party is in power and you're happy because your guy won, if that happened, then hey, pray and be peaceable with each other. But if it's the other party, get your musket, right? And then start cursing and start flipping out and complaining as often as you can. That's what we think we hear. But he knows the types of kings who are in power. He knows who the high authorities are. They're the same ones that killed Jesus and the same ones that beat him. They beat him. They beat him out of injustice. Friend, our, our war is not with flesh and blood. It's with darkness. It's with principalities. We have to remember that. Pray for the repentance. Pray for a change of heart. Pray for the Holy Spirit to capture unjust, broken leaders. Pray for the joy of God to sweep over them 
what, what would it even look like if every elected official in every sphere across our country immediately, not just loved Jesus, but believed what the Bible said, what would it do within a year? What would it do within a month or a day even? Pray for it. We can pray for this. God tells us to. Jeremiah 29. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. So we pray for Knoxville. We're about to do it here in a minute. We know that there are going to be unjust broken rulers. We already know this. But we pray on its behalf for its welfare, starting with God's glory sweeping through them all. This is where we begin, not with imprecations. That's just lazy. It's lazy. Oh, it's so selfish. Imprecations are not to be used all the time. I mean, that's indicated by the fact that we only have a handful in the Bible, right? That should tell us something right there. It just doesn't get heavy rotation on David's playlist. Shouldn't on ours either. But... But if leaders are callously and consistently refusing justice, our only recourse is to pray that God's judgment, his judgment, be full and fair to extinguish all oppression for his glory. Not just ours, his. Not our safety, his glory. Listen, friends, this is a difficult psalm. I don't want to minimize its difficulty, right? But we have to be... Sure, we don't become so bloodthirsty or so sentimental that judgment itself becomes a problem for us. 